<clears throat> hello, 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 and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Um, this is a slightly different setup than my usual uh, live stream. This is live on Instagram. Uh, it's a different microphone. You can probably make out that I have my keyboard behind me, um, and that's because right after this, I'm going to do a music practice. I'm going to be leading songs at the Chinese church uh, this coming Sunday. Going to choose some songs. Going to practice them tonight. Uh, but just before that, I thought I'll do a reading from today's passage. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll be reading uh, from um, this text. It's an old sermon that I preached in 2011. So that's whoa, 22nd of March 2011. That was over 10 years ago. It's on the Lord's Supper. So I'll do that, um, and I'll publish this, and I'll practice my songs for Sunday. Lots of fun, by the way, uh, but tiring. <laughs> tiring because you know, I'm practicing standing up uh, to sing the songs, and somehow when you're pressing a pedal, especially you're leaning on just one leg, and some of you guys know on Friday I went for this really long walk, so I'm still recovering from that, still kind of sore all over. Uh, but it's all good. Uh, I love singing uh, songs that praise God, uh, learning new songs especially. I'm trying to introduce some of them for Sunday. But of course, you need some old ones so that everyone can sing along and can praise God together. So uh, if you're interested, Chinese Church is meeting again this Sunday on 12th of September. The English congregation meets at 2 o'clock. Uh, my good friend Josh Bell will be preaching from 2 Corinthians, is it chapter 3, I think? Yeah, chapter 3. And I'll be leading songs for that. And it will be the very first time uh, we'll be meeting physically since lockdown. So there's something special about that. Please do pray for the leaders. Uh, lots of arrangements, uh, lots of setup uh, just for that day to keep things um, safe, but also encouraging. Uh, so do pray for them and do just to encourage them, tell them uh, what a great job they're doing. So anyway, on to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Hello and welcome. We are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today, and this is a message entitled, Not the Lord's Supper. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Some call it the Eucharist from the Greek word eucharistio meaning to give thanks. Jesus gave thanks for the bread in verse 24. The Catholic Church celebrates mass from the Latin misa, which means dismissed, which the priests would say at the end of the meeting to dismiss the congregation, similar to what your headmaster would say at the end of morning assembly. Here at the Chinese church, all three congregations gather once a month for what we call Holy Communion. Here though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul calls it the Lord's Supper, and we see that in verse 20. But also, different church traditions use slightly different forms. Some have just one loaf of bread and one single cup. We do that at Stag. Uh, for us uh, at the Chinese church, uh, it is thin, crunchy wafers uh, and many tiny little plastic cups. Some churches use red wine or expensive port. The last time I checked our cupboard stores, for us, it's Robinson's Black Currant Cordial. <laughs> but what does it mean? What does it mean? 
What does it mean for churches all over the world for the last 2,000 years to observe this practice of sharing the bread and the cup? What does it symbolize? Does it have any benefit for the Christian who takes part in this tradition? Today, we come to our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which tells us what the Lord's Supper means, but also what it does not mean. It tells us what Christians should do, but it also warns us what we should not do with regards to the Lord's Supper. You see, Paul is writing about a problem with the way this church was celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. If you've been with us the past year studying from 1 Corinthians, this is a church with problem after problem after problem, divisions in chapter 1, jealousy in chapter 3, arrogance in chapter 4, and sexual sin in chapter 5. The theme of the series has been, we are messed up, but God does not give up. God is faithful in saving us through Jesus Christ, and God is faithful in changing us to be like Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to Christians, Christians who still meet every Sunday, and Christians who still celebrate the Lord's Supper. Yet he begins by saying, verse 17, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. You guys are doing more harm than good by meeting together as the church, he seems to be saying. Now, some people feel really guilty when they don't come to church. They feel really bad for skipping rock fellowship because they want to stay home and watch TV instead. I know I felt that way every now and then, but Paul isn't talking about Christians who skip church. He's talking to the guys who actually turn up. And he says to them, you might as well have stayed at home. You're making things worse by coming. What's the reason he says this? Divisions. There are divisions inside the church. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. This phrase, when you come together, it's very important. It's a very important phrase that occurs five times in the text. Verse 17, your meetings, your coming together, do more harm than good. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. And verse 34, so when you come or meet together, it may not result in judgment. So when he says that these Christians were coming together as the church in verse 20, Paul is defining the church as a people. That is, the church is not a building. It is not made up of four walls, stained glass, long pews, a pipe organ, and a large cross up front. The church is the gathering of Christians, men and women who come together in response to God's call, the gospel. We learned that when we studied chapter 1, specifically 1 uh, verse 2. In fact, the very word church or ecclesia 
in the New Testament simply means a gathering of people. When, Till- when William Tyndale first translated the Bible into English, he didn't use the word church. Instead, he used congregation, a gathering of Christians. So Matthew 16:18 records Jesus as saying, On this rock, I will build my congregation. Sounds weird, right? Half a century later, the translators of the King James Bible were given strict instructions, strict guidelines to replace all occurrences of congregation with the word church. And its use has persisted since. You can see this document on display at the university library. This was to reflect the central authority of the Church of England. But it never meant that. The church is a gathering of Christians. It is not for nothing that I mention this because the Bible repeatedly emphasizes that it is Christians who gather together for worship in response to the gospel, who constitute God's true church. It is not a building. It does not depend on a king or governing authority. Now, Hebrews 12 does talk of a heavenly church, how when we gather here on earth, we join with angels in heaven in praise of God. This is Hebrews 12, 22. However, everywhere else in the New Testament, Paul will address the local church, small, discreet gatherings of believers. He writes to the church in Corinth, to the church in Colossae, to the church in Galatia, in the same way that we are the church here in Cambridge. We, who gather in this hall every Sunday or in the church center for Bible study on Wednesdays, the church is a gathering of God's people. This is why a church that splits is so serious. Paul hears that he, Paul says that he hears of divisions in the church at Corinth. Word has reached him. And he says that to some extent, he believes it, meaning everything looks calm on the surface, but things are stirring underneath. People are talking. However, someone mentions the tense situation to Paul, who is away from Corinth at this time. And Paul, upon hearing the news, says, you know what? I'm not surprised. What is surprising is what Paul says next, verse 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you. There have to be differences to show which of you have God's approval. The church is the gathering of God's people, but in the midst of this gathering are those who are true and those who are false. Turning up on a Sunday doesn't make you a Christian. God knows those who are his. In the end, it is God's approval that matters because he gathers his people as his church. And Paul is saying that sometimes God uses difficult situations like these to reveal those who truly belong to him. This is why Paul isn't surprised by news of church tensions. The word for divisions in verse 18 is where we get the English word heresies. Heresies. It isn't just a difference in opinion that is dividing the Corinthian Christians. It is a division in their very understanding of the truth. In other words, this is not argument over drums and worship. (laughs) 
this is not a clash between contrasting personality types. You know, I like this, or you prefer that. No, small cracks have appeared on the surface, but underneath, they run deep and threaten to split the church apart. What is the cause of this division? Paul tells us in verse twenty, "It's the Lord's Supper." Verse twenty. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Think back a month ago to Chinese New Year. Every year, hundreds of people flock to the Chinese church for our annual Lunar New Year celebration. We have performances, music, skits in the main hall, and right after. We have food laid out in the back hall. Our rows and rows of amazing, delicious Chinese food: roast duck, curry chicken, bak cham gai. Yum! Now imagine that as the service ended, the hundreds of church members and guests gather the, in the back hall for dinner. But what they see is the English congregation eating up all the food. We are tucking into the. Curry chicken. We are devouring the roast duck, and we say to them, "We just couldn't wait any longer for you guys. You were taking too long, and we were too hungry. And not only did we start eating first, we ate it all up. <laughs> not an impossible scenario, as you might think, if you've ever visited Rock Fellowship during dinner. Paul says, 'As you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else.'" One guy is starving while another is burping the benediction. It is a picture of impatience and inconsideration. Now I must stress: this is merely an illustration. Thank you, everyone from the English congregation, for not only waiting patiently for the main Chinese New Year celebration to end, but also arranging the tables and chairs beforehand and serving the food to the guests during dinner itself. Well done, brothers and sisters. Still, this situation was happening in Corinth. We get more details in the following verses, verse twenty-two. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Here we get a clearer picture of what went on. Paul clearly identifies two groups within the church: the wealthy, those who have homes, and the poor, those who have nothing. Acts chapter three verse forty-six reminds us that the early church met in homes. They didn't own a church building; instead, they met in the homes of the rich Christians. It's like Bill Gates. Opening up his home to the guy who sells the big issue outside Sainsbury's, there was a big contrast between the rich and the poor in this same church. Also, we need to clear up the, our use of the word "supper." Supper is a very English way of simply saying dinner. For Chinese, supper is dinner part two. <laughs> supper is what you have after dinner. Either way, supper or dinner, you know, whatever you call it, this was a proper meal. If you were a laborer or a slave, you would be tired 
and hungry by the end of the day. And you would have looked forward to dinner. It's like Sundays after badminton. You know, everyone heads for Hong Kong fusion. You usually order the clay pot rice or braised beef noodles. And after that, you have dessert, you know, sago in coconut condensed milk. Yum. You are looking forward to that meal. So here were the rich and poor gathered in the same church, but also coming together for dinner. What basically happened was the rich Christian said, right, I am not waiting for those laborers anymore. It's my house. I paid for this food. So I'm just going to start first. So they ate up all the food without leaving behind much for their brothers and sisters. Verse 21 says, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. Some translations read, you have your own supper. That is, the rich guys have their own special meal. This was the good stuff. Salmon sashimi, M&S, taste the difference. Sorry, that's Sainsbury's puddings. It was just for them. Now, all this unloving behavior would have been bad enough to deserve condemnation, except they weren't simply having dinner together. These Christians were also remembering the Lord's Supper. And Paul says their behavior was tantamount to despising the church of God. The wealthier Christians were humiliating those who have nothing. In order to correct the situation, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. He reminds us of Jesus' words at his Last Supper. And this is verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These words should be very familiar. We read them out loud every month before communion is served. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record for us Jesus's last meal with his disciples, his last supper before going to the cross. John's gospel inclusive without the instructions for the bread and the cup. It was the Passover meal, a yearly celebration of God's rescue of the people of Israel from slavery recorded in the book of Exodus. So again, it was a proper dinner. Uh, there was lamb, wine, sauces to dip bread in together with spices. But this meal was extra, extra special. Jesus said to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, Luke twenty-two fifteen. However, notice, Paul wants us to remember not simply the meal, but the events surrounding the meal, details like on the night Jesus was betrayed, when he was arrested and put to trial, and words like after supper he took the cup, all remind us that this was a recorded historical event. Jesus used this meal to explain the reason for the cross. Jesus took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks for it and said, this is my body. 
in the same way he took the cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. He was explaining his death. His body would be broken. He would suffer. It would be a gruesome death. The cup reminds us of the cup of God's anger in Isaiah 51. We studied this a few weeks ago. Jesus would be taking God's anger and punishment for the sins of the world. At the same time, Jesus says, the cup symbolized God's new covenant in his blood. It was an agreement finalized through his death. This week at Rock Fellowship, we studied Exodus 19, the mountain of God. It was a scary mountain. Smoke and thunder and fire covered the mountain. God's voice thundered as he spoke to Moses and the people, such that everyone was terrified. There, God said, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But Hebrews 12 reminds us as Christians, this is not the mountain we as Christians have come to. Hebrews 12:22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the word, than the blood of Abel. Jesus, in other words, is the mediator of this new covenant. A covenant is God's agreement with his people. It's his promise to save them. Covenant is uh, the exact same word as testament. You know, Bibles are divided into Old Testament, New Testament. Here we have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Jesus has come to fulfill all the requirements of the Old Covenant, the sacrifice, the temple, the offerings, the priestly duties. Through his death, he became a mediator of the New Covenant, a new agreement, this New Covenant. So what Jesus is doing is explaining how he takes God's judgment on the cross and accomplishes our salvation through his sacrifice. He uses the bread and the cup to point to his body and to his blood. Twice he says, do this, do this in remembrance of me. Now he doesn't just say, remember me, but do this in remembrance of me. That is, remember what I did on the cross, what happened and what it means. This is why Paul says it is important for us also to proclaim the Lord's death, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in verse 26. Some churches think, understandably, that we proclaim by having communion. That is, you don't need to say anything because communion speaks for itself. I seriously disagree. I think communion is meant to spur us, not simply to point out the significance of the bread and the cup and the wine, but also to preach the gospel. In part, this is why Paul retells the events of the Last Supper. He's saying that these things really happened. But the strongest reason I can give as to why Paul isn't simply saying that carrying out the Lord's Supper is enough, and this is the most damning reason I can see in a text, it's this. That was precisely what the Corinthians did. They 
celebrated the communion. They followed the tradition. But Paul says in verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. The Bible is warning us as Christians against empty tradition. It is saying that empty tradition is frankly useless. But Paul will go on to show us that empty tradition is also downright dangerous. Mindlessly bowing to empty tradition can result in the judgment of God. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Notice how we never read these, these verses out loud at communion, not, not these verses. What does Paul mean when he says we ought to examine ourselves before taking the bread and the cup? Perhaps he means for us to search our hearts for unconfessed sin. Perhaps this is that short moment of reflection we have at the beginning of the Lord's prayer when everyone bows their heads in prayer. For centuries, many have struggled with these words. Some Christians ask, am I worthy to take communion? They know their hearts are sinful and they recognize that God is holy and so they despair. The great evangelical preacher, Charles Simeon, coming up to his first year at King's College, Cambridge, was quite shaken at the prospect of taking communion for the very first time in his life. He wasn't a Christian, but he vaguely knew that communion was a somewhat serious affair. He reflected on his own life and felt so unworthy as he considered the weight of his sins that he wrote this, I frequently looked upon the dogs with envy. So he picked up a book, uh, which was on, of all things, the Jewish sacrifices in the Old Testament, <laughs> such as Leviticus. But for the first time in his life, he understood the significance of Jesus's death on the cross, how Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant. He actually became a Christian from reading a booklet about Leviticus. If the Lord's Supper causes you to reflect on your sins before God's holiness and opens our eyes to behold his love in Jesus' sacrifice, then that kind of fear isn't a bad thing. Having said that, I don't think that that's what verse 27 is necessarily referring to. The King James Bible translates verse 27 as, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, unworthily. That is, it highlights the unworthiness of the person taking communion. Yet the NIV and most modern translations have it right in rendering the phrase as in an unworthy manner. It is not the person who is unworthy to approach God because the truth is all of us, all of us are unworthy sinners. None of us can approach a holy God. None of us deserve the sacrifice of the Son of God. Yet God gave his Son up on the cross in love and in his grace. He did this graciously, freely, and generously. 
No, what Paul is talking about is this unworthy manner. There was such a way that these Corinthian Christians were observing communion that was dishonoring the meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper. He tells us how in verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul describes a person who takes communion without recognizing the body of the Lord. What does that mean? It could mean that he does not acknowledge Jesus' sacrifice, the bread and cup are meaningless signs to him because Jesus' death makes no difference to his life. If so, Paul's instruction for us to examine ourselves is the call to reflect on the events of the cross, to think, did Jesus take my sins on the cross? Did it, what did it mean for him to die my death on the cross? However, there might be another layer of meaning to that phrase, one that better fits with the context of the gatherings. Notice how Paul mentions the body of the Lord without mentioning the blood. We were introduced to this phrase a couple of weeks ago in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 16, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. Here in chapter 10, Paul begins by speaking about Jesus' blood and body, but his emphasis then turns from Jesus to us on our participation in his sacrifice. We who are many share in his one sacrifice. Therefore, we, though many, are one body. The church is the one body of the Lord. Therefore, recognizing the body of the Lord means recognizing our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the person sitting next to you. It's the guy you just said hi to or perhaps ignored during the break before the sermon. The call to examine yourself. It's not this inward thing, but it's an outward thing. Communion isn't about you taking the cup and the bread. Communion is about you sharing, sharing the cup, with your brother, sharing the loaf with your sister. God takes this so seriously that he judges the Corinthian church for not recognizing the body of the Lord. Verse 30, that is why many, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. The next verses talk about judgment and discipline. Teaching judgment is hard, but I find teaching discipline even harder. First, let's start with judgment. It is God's judgment over the Corinthian church. God has judged these Christians through sickness, even through death. When he says a number of you have fallen asleep, it isn't a reflection on how boring this sermon was that Sunday. It means they died. It means, well, God killed them. I'm being straight with you because the Bible is being straight with you. Verse 31 says, if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. The most common verse I hear quoted on TV is, 
Judge not lest ye be judged. Jesus says that in Matthew 7, warning against being judgmental. Yet this verse is often used against Christians. No one should judge anyone, the argument goes. Well, here's the Bible saying, one, God does judge, and two, he judges his church. But also three, we must judge ourselves. That is, we need to be discerning, especially when it comes to our own sinfulness and behavior in light of the gospel. Paul puts it plainly, if the Corinthians had judged themselves, God would not have had to judge them. Yet even harder than judgment is what this passage teaches us about discipline. Discipline, verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Hebrews 12 reminds us as Christians that God disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines those he calls his sons. Hebrews 12, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Understand this. God was judging the Corinthian church, not in order to condemn them, but rather to discipline, to discipline them. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that the reason he judges them is so that they will not be condemned with the world. His judgment in this world was keeping them from facing the final judgment, the eternal condemnation in hell. I can understand if you find a Bible's teaching on judgment and discipline hard. Paul does say, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It is silly to suggest that Christians should love suffering and love pain. That is an utterly ridiculous notion. Yet what these verses do for us is equip Christians with the purpose of their suffering in their lives. God is always in control in our times of blessing and in our times of difficulty. So much so that he even uses situations of great pain and suffering in a Christian's life for his good. In speaking about condemnation, we must always keep in mind Romans 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what this means is a Christian may undergo immense suffering. He might be lying in a hospital bed with a serious disease. He may have just been in a bad accident. It means that when I visit this Christian and he asks me, you know, you know, is God punishing me? Have I done something wrong to deserve this punishment? I can look that Christian in the eye and I can say to him, no, no. Romans 8 verse 1 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. If you are in Christ, Jesus took all the punishment for your sins on himself on the cross. Or supposing a Christian did something terribly wrong and sinful, 
Peter does warn us not to suffer as a murderer or a thief or a criminal, 1 Peter 4.15. Perhaps this Christian committed a crime, got caught, was thrown into prison. Perhaps he was even awaiting the death penalty. And he asks the same question, is God punishing me? Well, if this is a true brother in Christ, I can give him the exact same answer. No, no, God isn't punishing you. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences for your sins, either on yourself or on others. This is a world that is broken by sin and selfishness. Yet, if you are in Christ, and I must stress this, I can only say this for someone who is in Christ, then Jesus took all the punishment for your sins on the cross. Nothing can separate you from God's love, not even death. However, today's teaching teaches us, today's passage teaches us that God uses situations of our own sinfulness to discipline us. It doesn't mean he hates us. It's quite the opposite. Hebrew says God only disciplines those he loves. That is a sign of a good and loving father, one who does not allow his sons to continue in sin. I'm not sure if you've ever failed in an exam before. I have, you know, big time. I flunked and had to stay back over the holidays to retake my finals. It was embarrassing and it was painful. I remember thinking, I don't want to ever do this again. (laughs) I want to learn from this. You know, when it comes to the painful lessons in life, I would say to you, learn from them. Learn from them. You, You don't want retakes in suffering. What was the lesson God was teaching the Corinthians? It was a lesson in love. They needed to love one another as the body of Christ. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Paul says, wait. Wait for each other. I'm tempted to say to Paul, was that all they needed to do? (laughs) Just wait? Is that what got them into so much trouble, not waiting? But it is such practical advice, isn't it? Waiting. There's the food. There's the Lord's Supper. I know you guys are hungry, but you know what? You need to wait. In fact, the whole purpose of coming together as a church is to wait. Verse 34 is equally practical. If you cannot wait and you know you'll be hungry, then grab a bite before church, you know, eat at home. (laughs) It is practical advice for how to love one another practically. Just wait. And yet there is more to this advice than just simply being patient. Last Saturday, I went with the guys for a walk in Grantchester. It's not a very macho thing to do, (laughs) going for walks in the park, in the orchard, but that's what we did as guys. It was a sunny day, so the place was packed. Uh, We wanted to get some tea and snacks, so D and I sat at a table while W and J went to get the food. D and I, we waited. You know, we were waiting for the food. Oh, when is it going to come? We waited for W and J. When are they going to come? That was one kind of waiting. We didn't do it impatiently, I hope. We were waiting expectantly, waiting for the food. Um, 
But you see, W and J over there at the counter, they also waited. There was a long queue, and they had to get in line for the tea. So there, they were waiting. They were waiting for us. You see, there are two kinds of waiting. We were waiting to eat, but they were waiting to serve us. Paul says, when you come together, wait, wait for each other. The 2010 NIV has, you should all eat together. I, I like that way of putting it. You know, in Cantonese, it's like saying, Yatai Sikvan, you know, let's eat together. Paul is saying, you have come together to eat. So eat together, together. It's just a common sense thing to do. This is the whole purpose of coming together as the church. You want to, you want to build one another up. I've not come for myself, I've come for you, and you two have come for me. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We have our meals together. We come before God in worship together. Because the Bible says, when we come together as Christians, we come together as the church. We come together as the body of Christ. One last thing. It really is worth revisiting the context of the split in this church. If you remember, Paul was rebuking the rich Christians in particular for their behavior, which was embarrassing the poor and despising the church of God. Notice this. Here is Paul condemning the wealthier Christians, but nowhere does he tell them to do anything with their money. He doesn't say, give your money to the poor. Neither does he say with regards to the poor, to the poor, to the food, sorry, share the expensive Tesco finest meal with everyone else. You know, I'm not sure Tesco finest is very fancy, but he doesn't say all these fancy food, make sure you share it with your brothers and sisters. Paul also does not forbid the rich from enjoying their rich private meals. What does he say at the end of verse 34? Eat at home, just eat it. He's saying the church is not the setting for you to be flaunting your wealth. I'm sure the reason the rich Christians were doing this in the first place was because they felt they had a right to do it. It was their money. Perhaps they worked hard for it or they knew it was a blessing from God and they received it with thanks. And yet, and yet, their actions were proving insensitive to their poorer brothers and sisters in the congregation. This is one of the main reasons the Lord's Supper is distilled to its simple form today. We have just, you know, the bread and the cup, not, not as part of a meal. This is, of course, in keeping with the symbolism of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. We remember his death, we proclaim the cross. But this simplicity is also an act of wisdom. Uh, if we did have the Lord's Supper as part of a main meal, you know, I shudder to think, would we act in the same way as the Corinthians? Our hunger <laughs> might cause many of us to act just as unloving towards our brothers and sisters. We might even justify our actions, citing you know, cultural <laughs> differences. Perhaps like Corinthians, we might even say, I brought this dish, so I should eat more. The Corinthians problem is very much our problem here at the Chinese church, not simply because we all love food, but because much of our Chinese culture prides wealth and status, such that these values are reflected in the way that we eat our food and the types of food we love to eat. 
The application of today's verses extends far beyond the first week of the month when we gather for communion. It speaks to all our fellowships where we share meals uh, together before Rock, before Paul, before Joshua fellowships. It speaks to the way we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In particular, today's passage takes into consideration the weaker brothers in the midst of the larger gathering. Do you know the parable Jesus told about the sheep and the goats? Like today's passage, it's a passage that speaks about judgment, division, food, and loving the brother who has nothing. This is Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 onwards. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The sheep are surprised. They ask Jesus, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we give you something to drink? Jesus answered, as the judge and as the king, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. You see, when Paul says we have to consider the other brothers in our midst, you know, we have to love the body of Christ, the church. Some of us might think we have to know everyone's names, you know, not, not a bad thing or be everyone's best pal, also not a bad thing, and treat everyone to duck rice at Jay Restaurant if you can afford it, you know, why not? <laughs> but that is not what he means. Paul is reminding us to look out for the weaker, the weaker brother. That's what Jesus says, doesn't he? Whatever you did for one, just one, one of the least of these brothers. You know, when you come to church, don't just look out for the pastors and the leaders, the so-called important people, or even for those who are just like you, your friends, another Chinese face, or someone around your same age. No, look for the one in need. Hey, you could use a cup of tea. Do you want to talk? Do you want to pray about something? Look out for the least of your brothers. And that's not a hard thing to do. You know, it's the new guy who's standing in the corner by himself. It's the sister who hasn't really been around for some time. It's the old grandma. It's the young kid looking really bored. (laughs) Look out for the least. 
Because Jesus says, what you do for them, you do for me. Love Jesus, love his church. And I have uh, lyrics to the song I end uh, this message with. I'll just read it out. And so with thankfulness and faith, we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here in church, on earth, sorry. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and we'll join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. Yeah, so that's it. That's it. a really long message. Uh, I don't know how they sat through this entire message 10 years ago, but that was a reading from the, Not the Lord's Supper. That's the title of the sermon based on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. Uh, thanks to the couple of people who popped into this live uh, recording. Uh, thanks to you if you're listening to this as a recording. Um, yeah, take care and God bless. Goodbye. <laughs>